You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. John Chiambi is one of the rising stars at ESPN, even though he's been there for more than a decade. He was a voice of ESPN's Major League Baseball coverage until taking over the Chicago Cubs lead announcer prior to last year. He's still a major player with the network's college basketball coverage. Graduate of Boston College, Shambi got his start at the college radio station. He worked in South Florida for a couple of sports radio stations before accepting a broadcasting position with the Florida Marlins. He then joined the Atlanta Braves broadcast team before joining ESPN in 2009. His nickname, Boog, comes from his resemblance to former Major League Baseball player, John Boog Powell. Boog, welcome to Sports Connections. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, Did you grow up playing sports? And were you any good? I did grow up playing sports. I mean, I, I was good in my little pocket. I grew up in New York City. And, you know, it's funny. The two sports that I played were baseball and soccer. In New York City, football is not really available. And I I don't know. It was I grew up during a time when youth soccer was really pushed. So but baseball was my sport. And I was a yeah, I was a good I was a good baseball player. I was, uh, you know, in uh, in my high school, I was, uh, you know, the athlete of the year, my senior year. I went to the College of William and Mary to play baseball as a preferred walk-on. I hurt my shoulder. I transferred to Boston College. I got cut at BC. Um, so I was I was decent. I had I had some moments. I had some some fun moments as a player. But I loved playing. I loved playing baseball. So you were more than I mean, if you if you got a chance to walk on at a Division One program, you know, you had a shot at, at playing at Boston College. You were more than decent. You were you were a pretty good player. What position did you play? I was a catcher. I was a left-hand hitting catcher. So that was, that was what I felt like my, my ticket was. And I get a chance, you know, before my senior year of college, I went and spent the summer with my father who lived in Dallas and I played summer ball down there. So I get a chance to really see what high level baseball was like. And yeah, I just, I, I, I enjoyed playing so much, but I was, high school was, high, high school was, was peak me uh, as a player, I would say. Okay. When, when did you figure out that you wanted to be a broadcaster? Was that something that happened early or when it was like, okay, I'm not going to make the big leagues as a player. Right. Hey, how about talking about it? I'm a pretty good talker. <laughs> so I think it was always sort of swirling around. I was as a little kid, I was a talker. I was not shy. I grew up, I, I was born in Philadelphia my sports roots are Philadelphia, even though I moved to New York when I was seven. My dad's side of the family is from there. My parents met in college. They both went to Drexel. And the Philly folks got their hooks in me so that by the time I had moved and I was six, seven years old, I was all Phillies and I wasn't changing. Um, you know, I've told this story before in terms of my love for baseball. It's probably five or six. My grandparents went on a cruise and I didn't understand where they were going. And so they explained to me what a cruise was. You go away, you, you know, you yeah. eat, you play shuffleboard, you gamble, you visit all these cool places. And my only question at the end was, how do you get the box scores? <laughs> my grandfather said, you don't. 
And I said, well, I'm never going on a cruise. <laughs> and as, as an aside, I have actually never been on a cruise. That's true. Uh, John, you and I are, are more alike than you know. I, I like to joke with, with people that I could count to 720 before I started kindergarten because that's how many cards were in a baseball card set. 721 was totally irrelevant. I had to be able to put my cards in order. And so I could, I had to count to 720. And the other thing is I could read before I started kindergarten by reading baseball cards and Ryan Lefevre, the longtime uh, voice of the Royals is a really good friend of mine. And when he, his first year was 99 with the Royals. And I, I said, I'd gotten to know him a little bit. And I said, Hey, Ryan, next time you talk to your dad, tell him, thanks. And he said, sure, for what? And I said, well, he taught me how to read. And he said, that's really interesting. He didn't teach me how to read. How, how did he do that? And I said, well, I learned to read by reading baseball cards. And I kept getting stuck on Lefebvre. And he goes, tell me about it. I was in third grade before I could pronounce it correctly. <laughs> and I said, but my mom convinced me that not everything was phonetic. And if I once I got past that hurdle, I could see that Lefebvre was Lefevre. And I said, I, I got past that. So your dad helped me a lot. Well, he laughed a little bit. I saw him about a week later and he comes up, puts his arm around me, goes, dad says you're welcome. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. I, I think our world's revolving around sports. I think we, we're a lot alike in that. Um, yeah. What do you like best about being a broadcaster? Ooh, I, I still would say it's... Um, the best way to put it is when I'm facing the field or the court or the camera, it's still the best part, right? I mean, to, I'm in Kansas City right now for the Big 12 tournament, and I can't even imagine what it would be like if, you know, to get, you know, Kansas, Baylor, Kansas, Texas Tech in the championship game. I mean, I'm, I'm just excited about it. I really yeah. am. So... There's just still the game's the thing, right? And I, I mean, I guess you know, you we can drill down on the things I like specifically about the broadcasting of it, but I'm still energized. I mean, I basically made my hobby, um, my work, yeah. and it's something I would be watching the Big 12 tournament if I weren't broadcasting it, so. Yeah. You know, I, you know, and I love baseball and I would be watching a ton of baseball if I weren't broadcasting. it. So that's the, I, you know, the, the best I could probably give you on that. I mean, there's technical stuff as well that I like, but yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, that kind of sums it up. But yeah, no, I, I agree completely because a lot of people, I've been covering sporting events for more than 40 years. I, I started broadcasting my college game. I went to a division three school and doing, doing some play-by-play -play on the college radio station back in the late 70s. And I still get a kick out of going to the games. And you don't make a lot of money as a freelance writer, but you get into games for free. You're sitting where people would pay thousands of dollars to sit there, and you're getting paid a little bit to sit there and watch the game right in front of you. I mean, look, when I first, first started and I was working – at WQAM in Miami, I was sleeping on Bob Wischusen's couch and we were friends from Boston college. 
And this was back in the early 90s. So this was still at a time. So we were producers, update guys, yeah. reporters. But for the most part, we were off the air. But we got press credentials to the Marlins, the Heat, the Panthers. So if there was a game being played, we'd go because we loved – there were two reasons. Two reasons. We'd go because we loved sports and also – in the early 90s, they still weren't making you pay for food in the press box. So that was how we got our that was how we got our dinner most of the time. So, you know, that but but it was, I mean, what the heck could be better than going to a pro sports game for free? Yeah. And so that's that's what we would do. I, I'm right there with you. So what's the hardest part about being a broadcaster? It, I'm, maybe it's remaining neutral? No, no. Really? I think that's one of the things that gets kind of lost. No, the hardest thing about being a broadcaster is just the travel, is that sometimes yeah. you just would like to stay home. You don't want to broadcast the games at home, or at least I don't. I despise it. But, yeah, just the, it's it's the – the travel, like, and again, I, you know, I understand I'm doing something unique and for a lot of people, they love it. It just, yeah, it just can get tiring. You know, when you're, you know, eight days and you're going, you know, Lawrence, Lubbock, Austin, Stillwater, um, yeah. wears you out. And again, I, it's still awesome, but I, the travels that is the, is the thing. The job's still great. That's the whole, the whole point. I mean, there's nothing better than I've been doing this for 25 years. There's nothing better. I'm sh to show up at the big 12 tournament and be like, well, I'm excited to be here. You know what yeah. I mean? Like there, yeah. I love that. I love that. I'm excited that like I'm genuinely here and like, wow, this is going to be great. People have offered to carry my briefcase or something like that. My response is, if I get if I got an extra ticket for everybody who had ever offered to carry my briefcase, they wouldn't sell a single ticket because they'd all be filled with friends of mine who had offered <laughs> to help me to get inside there. So I agree with you. the The sport it's all the peripheral stuff that that makes it makes it hard. Relatively speaking, makes it harder. Yeah. So what's where where are your favorite places to call a game? And I, it could be college basketball it could be baseball put the list together um i mean my favorite place in college basketball is allen Fieldhouse. yeah it just is i i don't know what else to tell you i it's um i don't have any connection to allen Fieldhouse besides the fact that i've done a ton of games there but i i look i've done games at cameron i've done games at uh, and not like two games at Cameron. I've done a bunch of games at Cameron. I've done games at the Palestra and they're magnificent. Allen's my favorite place. I just, the crowd is loud. The building is special. There's just something about it. I just think it lives up to it. You know, I got to do the big Monday game, the double overtime, Texas tech, Kansas game. I think that's, I think that that's one of the, not including conference tournaments, I think that's probably one of the best games of the year. And part of the reason it was one of the best games of the year is because it was at Allen and the fans were great. So yeah. I, I would say that that's a starting place. I think, you know, my home ballpark with the Cubs is is 
<laughs> right up there. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's so old school and takes you back. I think in baseball, my other favorite parks would be Fenway and then San Francisco. Um, I think are, are special places. San Francisco, one of the things I really like about it is it's built on such a small parcel of land. So the fans are right on top of it. You know, as far as Fenway, you know, it's got that East coast vibe to it, but it's still, look, the best way I could describe it would be this David Ross, who's now the Cubs manager. He and I worked together for three years on television and we had a Red Sox game one night on TV for ESPN And we got to the ballpark a little bit early and we came through the home plate entrance and we walked up. We decided we were going to go to the field and we walked. It was still quiet. It was still probably three o'clock ish. And we walked up one of the, you know, one of the tunnels, basically just to the first base side of home plate. So that when you get to the top of that tunnel, you're staring right at the green monster. Yeah. And I still remember it. And I know that if I asked David, he'd remember it too. But we walk through the tunnel. We get to the top. We're staring at the monster. The park's pretty quiet. And we both just look at each other and smile. And now consider this for a second. I have at that point easily done 100 games at Fenway Park. David Ross played there. Yeah. And yet. We're walking through and we both had the same. I have goosebumps telling you this story. We had the same reaction. It was like, oh, man, that's cool. And that's one of the things that makes doing this job so much fun. Yeah. Um, so th- those would be two of them. I, I haven't done much football, so I don't have um, I don't have anything, you know, that. Um, that really, I haven't done Lambo. I would say on, on a bucket list of places to go, you know, like I've been to a Carolina Duke game as a fan at Duke. Um, I would say Lambo would be one of one of my bucket list spots. Yeah. Um, maybe an SEC football game, but I, I'm pretty fortunate in terms of the sports that I really love. You know, I've seen. I've seen most of the spots. So I think those, those places, you know, Allen, Cameron, the Palestra, and then Wrigley, you know, Fenway and, and, uh, and San Francisco. And the only one of those that you've mentioned that I haven't been at is San Francisco. Yeah, it's magnificent. Um, and, and as a case stater, I, I am, I'm sheepishly agreeing a hundred percent with you about Allen Fieldhouse. I think it is the, the greatest place to, to watch a college basketball game. Uh, I met a guy at church Sunday uh, who's from the Ukraine and I've got some real good friends who are, who are uh, over there and they, they basically have come home from, from the, you know, because of the conflict. And my friend took this guy to a game at Allen Fieldhouse Saturday, senior day. And I was talking to this guy and he was like, man, that was just absolutely amazing. Now I need to go to an NBA game. And, and there was a couple other KU fans there, and, and they said, no, you don't. If you go to an NBA game, it's all about the atmosphere. At Allen Fieldhouse, the atmosphere is all about the game. Right. NBA, it's all the peripheral stuff. 
mm-hmm. Allen Fieldhouse, it's about the game and that's it. And I, I, I can't get enough of it. So uh, I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. It's a great, great place. I'm lucky to broadcast in the league, you know, really good fans. And it's, uh, it's still a thrill every time I get a chance to go in there. That's one of those places we go there for shoot around and it's empty and it's quiet. I just want to go run around the place and take pictures. <laughs> yeah. So how do you how do you get fired up for a game when the crowd isn't into it? Obviously, you've never had that experience at, at, at KU, but right. you've done some games where the crowd isn't into it. How do you personally get fired up for a game like that? I've done games where the crowd wasn't there. I mean, I broadcast for the Marlins. I broadcast during COVID. That's the biggest challenge for sure. Yeah. That that I, I think that it is. I don't know that I have a great answer for it. I mean, you're, you're just, you're connecting to the game the way you connect to the game, but that, that jolt that you get from the crowd is everything. It's why, I mean, back to Allen Fieldhouse for a second. I do the games of Fran for Schilling, Chris Budden. The crowd is the fourth broadcaster. Yeah. In a big spot, you just lay out and it's like you're conducting. Yeah. And in the spots where the crowd isn't there, it's hard. You have to muster more energy. And it can be a little sort of, I don't know, like discombobulating because of where you think your level is supposed to be and how excited you think. You know, like I did the Marlins for eight years and – you know, they won it all in 97 and 2003, but in 03, it was September, and there were 2,000 people in a stadium that seats almost 70. Yeah. And it's not easy, but you just you connect what's happening on the field, and you just do it. You mentioned Fran. I've had a chance to have him on here. I actually was sitting next to Chris Budden uh, when I found out that she – was a sorority mate with a friend of mine. So I, we, she and I have connected as well. Talk about some of your favorite partners, some of your favorite broadcast partners in your 25 year career. You know, Fran, it, I got a neat connection with Fran just because we've worked together for a long time. I mean, in terms of, we probably done a game every single year and most years, a ton of games, but at least a game every year since, Oh man, I would say, Oh, probably 05. Yeah. And I think there was one year, maybe like 07, where, let's see if I get it right. So 07 or 06, but we started and we went to Puerto Rico together and called six games in Puerto Rico together. Then we went to Orlando and called six games in Orlando together. And then we did, and then we did, um, Oregon at K-State, Michael Beasley's freshman year. And then we did Washington in Stillwater to play Oak State. And then we did Clemson at uh, Illinois. So we did 15 straight games, 15, like 15 games and in, you know, basically – 18 days together. Like we joked about, you know, whether I was supposed to get him a ring or something like that, or, you know, how that, how that was supposed to, how that was supposed to work. But I, Fran is awesome. Chris Singleton, who I worked with a long time on the radio, uh, 
ESPN Radio. In fact, Chris and I, it just was announced, we're the new voices for Sony's baseball video game, MLB The Show. But I loved working with Singy. My current partner, I adore Jim Deshays. Smart, funny, curious, interesting. Rick Sutcliffe, all the years on TV, has been a blast. You know, Dave O'Brien was kind of a mentor to me back in the day when I was with the Marlins. Dave Van Horn is a legend. He's a Hall of Famer. You know, those those would be be some of the guys. I'm trying to think if I'm if I'm leaving anyone, you know, anyone out. But you know, yeah, I said Sutcliffe. I you know Ross Rossi obviously. Yeah. Um, those would be some of them. And I know Sut because he's from he's from Kansas City and he still hangs around here quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and and Jim Deshays has one of Berman's all time best nicknames. Two silhouettes uh, on Deshays. Jim silhouettes on Deshays. Yeah, that's probably the top five for Berman. Um, yeah. Now we talked about the fact that you picked up the nickname Boog because of your your similarity in appearance to Boog Powell. When did that first come about? I went to work at WQAM in 1993 and they hired me as, you know, basically as a board op and I was producing or learning to train on the board in the morning show. So it's, you know, five 30 in the morning. I had a mailbox. It said John Shambi on it. And that morning, the morning show team was Dave Lamont and Joe Rose, the former dolphin tight end. Dave's done a bunch of play-by-play nationally. Dave's a big D.C. sports fan, so a big Redskins fan, a big Nationals fan, or, I'm sorry, big Orioles fan. Um, and he said, you know, you kind of look like Boog Powell. And Joe Rose picked right up on it. And the next day when I came in, on my mailbox, taped over John Chambi, it said Boog Powell. <laughs> and that was it. Like, that was it. And it stuck. And it, and I will tell you, I never still to this day, I don't introduce myself as Boog because I don't feel like explaining it on the chance. Yeah. You know, there's a pretty good chance that the person won't understand. And they usually everybody ends up calling me Boog because they just pick up on the people in the orbit that call me Boog. Yeah. As far as Boog Powell, I did get a chance to meet him multiple times. He could not have been sweeter. The first time I met him, I sort of stumbled up to him and said, you know, I stole your nickname, uh, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And he cut me off and he said, oh, I know who you are. And so he just could not have been kinder, nicer. And then a couple of different times when I was doing Wednesday Night Baseball, we had games at Camden Yards. And one night we were coming back from break and they gave me a, a bad count. And all of a sudden, as I think I'm getting ready to speak, cut and Boo Powell's got a ESPN mic or ESPN mic flag and a mic. And he welcomes everybody back and says, this is the real Boog. Just wanted to <laughs> let you all know. So he's been wonderful. And, and honestly, the fact that I work in baseball, you know, back in the day, I'm sure you've encountered this, but, you know, there's less of this, but that getting to learn baseball, talking to scouts in press rooms was a huge thing. And they'd always remember me because they would remember the big redheaded guy, you know, nicknamed Boog. And so it really helped me to connect to people. And it was a, it was really a, a, a plus for me. 
How much did you know about him before you got the nickname? Obviously, you'd heard of him as a baseball fan, but I how had. much did you know about him? I didn't know. I mean, I, I knew baseball stuff. I knew that he was a pretty good player um, with power. Um, I don't know if he – I think he won the 70 MVP. Um, Somewhere in that range, yeah. But, like, I, I – yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I didn't have like a huge, uh, and I didn't know that his first real first name was John either. So. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was periphery, you know? Yeah. All right. I want to just wrap up with a couple of personal things. Talk about Project Main Street. Yeah. So Project Main Street was, uh, you know, the vision of uh, my late friend, Tim Sheehy. I grew up with Tim in New York City. We met when we were seven and a whole group of us, you know, as some were seven, some were eight, some were nine, but a whole group of us, you know, grew up playing sports together and we stayed good friends in, in New York. And in 2005, Tim was diagnosed with ALS and he and his wife, Katie, were having trouble really meeting a lot of the financial demands associated. The average out-of-pocket cost for someone that has ALS is $250,000. Wow. So, you know, it's known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Tim passed in 2007, but before he did, he helped us. Um, you know, we found Project Main Street, and we basically put together – uh, we had a fundraiser. Tim played college soccer at uh, South Carolina with one of the members of the band Hootie and the Blowfish. So they played our first event. Oh, wow. They played it for free. And we took the money and gave half to Tim and Katie. And the other half we used to start our 501c3. And, you know, so now it, it's our, our mission, you know, the line for Project Main Street is until there's a cure, there's care, you know, look, ALS is a hundred percent fatal. And I'm certainly interested and, and always willing to advocate for helping people with ALS in any path, raising money for research, what have you. But I do believe strongly that these people that are diagnosed with this disease, you can't forget about them. They need help. They need connection. And so we raise money and a hundred percent of the money we raise goes directly to people living with ALS. So if, you know, their condition is declined and they need a wheelchair and it's not covered for some reason, or they need a hospital bed or they need their, you know, first floor bathroom refurbished so it can become wheelchair accessible, but, you know, on and on it goes, you know, they might even need their insurance paid for a few months so that's what Project Main Street does. I'm proud of it. You know, with that, obviously, you know, a group did a, a great thing and, and put pressure on the league and the league responded. I'd been asking as well for years to come up with a Lou Gehrig Day. Well, now every year in Major League Baseball, June 2nd is Lou Gehrig Day. And so, you know, for the Cubs, they've, they've been I, – I can't even – it'd be impossible for me to articulate how supportive they've been – Project Main Street and our June 2nd last year, Lou Gehrig Day, was incredible. So, you know, for Project Main Street, it's a year-round thing, but certainly June 2nd for me will be a big thing. This year the Cubs play the Cardinals at home. And, uh, 
you know, we'll look to raise money and, and raise awareness because I think a lot of people don't know uh, much about the disease. Yeah, no, that's something definitely to be proud of. I like to wrap up my interviews with for the podcast with two things. First of all, talk about your family. Yeah. Um, my mom lives in New York City. She uh, is getting ready to retire, uh, works, uh, works real estate. My, uh, my dad lives in New Jersey. My parents divorced when I was three. I have a younger brother uh, who's in his early 30s who lives in New York City, and he works in media analytics. Um, his name's Ben. He's awesome. My sister's great. She lives in Nashville. She just left working for the Miami Heat. She's in her mid-30s. Um, you know, I was basically raised an only child, but getting to know my brother and my sister as I've gotten older has been a real blessing. And, you know, I wouldn't be where I am without my parents supporting me. I mean, financially, certainly in the early years when I wasn't making any money, they helped me and I owe them for that. And I'd also say in a broader scope, I have a lot of gratitude towards my parents for, um, they listened to my voice. They were interested in what I had to say. They, they, yeah. they cultivated thinking and they wanted me to have uh, a voice and free thought. And I just think it's something that, that helped me a lot. Last question. Again, I tell everybody this. You can interpret the question however you want and cater your answer however you want. What is your legacy? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know... I, I, I am, uh, I am, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that I'm going to, I'm going to steal this, Okay. but I am going to steal this because the only time that what is your legacy or how would you like to be remembered? The only answer that in my entire life that I ever remembered from anyone who's been interviewed from their answer was John Wooden and John Wooden's answer. How would you like to be remembered was as someone who was considerate of others. That's, I, I would say that would be my hope. That's what I would like. All right. Well, my friend, it's good to catch up with you again. Uh, obviously we're recording this leading up to the big 12, but I'm looking forward to seeing you down at T-Mobile center later this week. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.